This is Aliens and Artists, episode 12, part two of our conversation with J.F. Martel. I'm your host, Stuart Davis. I want to ask about this divestment of the weird, our disenchantment. This time we're living in, where if you're passionate about interiors, if you're a practitioner of the esoteric, this is not exactly a heyday for the mystic. On a prosaic level, we have people fetishizing technological objects they're holding in front of their face. I get this image of a siphoning that's slowly taking place, and the more we externalize in devotion to these devices, there's a drain happening, and I want to ask if there's such a thing as weird fatigue in which the transrational nature of this enigma exhausts us at some point. Mm-hmm. If there's such a thing as weird fatigue, is it getting worse because we're divesting ourselves of our natural capacity to relate to the weird? What is our status in that sense? Weird fatigue. I've never experienced weird fatigue personally. Uh, I know that maybe you would say that you did because things got so crazy and so impossible with the Mantis uh, events, right? I've never had a, a sufficiently sustained experience to, I haven't had enough of interconnected answers and half answers to a particular weird situation that would lead me to say, oh, there's no answer. I'm just, I'm just being toyed with. I'm sick of this. I'm tired of it. I've never had that because my experiences have been so sporadic and different from one another. I have a little bit. I'm just starting with my own experience and then we can, I can try to talk about the more collective level after. But there was a time where in 1997 or thereabouts where I had a, a synchronicity, a, a synchro storm, you know, a storm of synchronicities, dreams and all kinds of things I was seeing. Graffiti was speaking to my dreams and, you know, it's just like everything I was seeing was fitting into this meshwork of meaning. And of course, at the end of it, there was no payoff. Uh, it just stopped and I never figured out what it all meant. Although I can see now that some of it planted seeds that later grew into the various things. And I could, I certainly don't think that it was a waste of my time or a waste of whoever was c- causing its time. But I remember a feeling at one point saying, I'm never going to figure this out. There's just no answer. There's no reason for this happening. So I guess at that point, I would have experienced something like weird fatigue. I'm not sure if that's what you mean by the term though. Or do you mean that we today, because we're so disconnected from those aspects of reality that give us, that deliver the real, the the weird, uh, whether because of that, we are just not, we are insensitive to it or immune to it, or we're not noticing it. I guess I, I, I need more details on what you mean. Yeah. I mean, both. Right, right. Certainly in my life, there's been times when the frequency of the experiences, even on a mundane physical level, losing sleep every night from the repeated incursions during waking hours, being so consumed and obsessed that it eclipsed other parts of my life. I experienced some fatigue from that. I know my family has as well. So Mm -hmm. I mean, in a personal sense, but also what you were touching on with the collective, which is, it seems like we used to be weird 
marathon runners, and now we can barely make it a block without getting exhausted. Like the nuance and sophistication of our faculties have atrophied. Right. Maybe this epoch is about the external and objective materialism, and it's not about the internal. But I feel like we've lost our chops. I agree. I totally agree with that. And like my my theory about that is as follows. I think that I wouldn't go back and say it's it's materialism, although that's part of it for sure. I think it's basically the digitization of our lives that has largely contributed. And I don't think, again, I have to qualify my terms. I don't mean digitization starting with like, I don't know, the internet in 1994 or the first PC in 1982 or whatever it was, 78 or whatever it was, the first home computer. I mean, digitization starting with Descartes. Oh. You know? So so not with idealism, but with a, a certain species of idea, not with materialism, but with a certain species of idealism. I think that what happens is that modernity inheres in a theory about reality that doesn't let things it's digital in the sense that it's it's dualistic and binary in its apprehension of things. Oh, yeah. Something is either A or B, right? Uh, there's no space between A or B. It's an infinite gap that things just leap over miraculously when they need to. Whereas, in, of course, in reality, between A and B, or between one and zero, or one and two, or two and three, there's an infinitude of change and becoming. Phil and I just did an episode on Bergson, so my mind's in there right now. But there is a, if you look at it in terms of analog versus digital, when you think of the world in the analog sense, then you can see how things kind of bleed in and phase into one another. They're, they're infinitely divisible into little units, but those little units are always kind of fictions that we create mentally to make sense of processes of becoming that are actually very fluid and very chaotic and strange and unpredictable. And so I think that this digitization, which begins, I would say, with like the late scholastics in the Middle Ages and Descartes, and then the, the rationalists and empiricists that came afterwards, I think that that process finds its, its final physical embodiment in our technological digital culture where everything gets translated into ones and zeros. Everything gets digitized. And so the weird, which inheres entirely in the in-between, the betwixt and the between, the, the, the weird fluid phasings of things in, one into the other, is given less and less of a chance to enter into our lives and becomes more and more disturbing and disruptive when it does. So we live in a society where things are literally getting kind of algorithmically timed and scheduled on a moment-to-moment basis for everyone, and we're not even aware of it. But all this is done in through with digital tools that think in terms of binary code, and I think it ref, we see that reflected in the way we think about the world, the way we approach things, and the way we perceive things. So I think that the weird becomes, as, as more and more of our time is taken up by not only do we have to get the car fixed and go and get our driver's license renewed or whatever, all those usual things we've had to do now for a hundred years or whatever, but we also have to be on our screens responding to email and we have to be on social media and we have to do everything on our you know, computer screen. I just think that there's less and less time, dead time, for us to just experience 
the world where the weird happens. I mean, how many synchronicities have been missed by people because they were, instead of waiting in line for the record shop to open, they were waiting at the bank and, you know, going, going nuts on their phones on Twitter, not noticing their environment. I think it sounds simplistic, but I think it has an effect. We're just not paying attention to reality unless that reality is first filtered through our devices. And then when we actually look up from our devices and look at reality, we're actually just seeing the reality that's reflected to us in our devices. We're seeing a, an overly conceptualized world that is made up of discrete things. And it's just really hard to slip out of that mode, which has always been access accessible to us because it's essential for us to inhabit that mode in order to think conceptually. But it's increasingly hard for us to slip out of that and just drift through becoming as we once did when we were walking to school or um, instead of being driven because nobody walks to school anymore or uh, waiting for something to happen, waiting for the phone to ring with no recourse as to what to do next. You just have to sit there. And then maybe it's in those moments, that dead time, which has been completely taken from us and colonized, maybe that's where the weird happens. And so when it actually breaks through now in this environment, it's very disruptive because we have to get back to this digital rigmarole that we're all engaged in. We have to get back to it or else life stops functioning. So we're always kind of like, you really have to create a space and a time in your life for the strangeness of the world to manifest itself or else the world just appears as already, always already known, always already figured out. And you can see that attitude reflected even in the theories about what UFOs are, either either this or that, and then all the debates that, or what fairies are, what this are. And so the digital thing is crept into every, every element, every, every nook and cranny of our cognitive space, I think. One of the most acute expressions of this, in my view, and I know you'll probably agree with this because your book, Reclaiming Art in the Age of Artifice, is such a seminal work in this regard. Anyway, one of the acute expressions is something I've come to call depth revation. Nice. Meaning we are deprived of depth continually. Even in the instances when we can step outside of that and make contact with the enchanted, the mystery we live in, the rewards for doing so are non-existent. Conversely, we are punished often for making the kind of inquiries that you and I are describing. Mm -hmm. This is leading to a question, I promise. I feel as though the entire cosmology of the real is upside down right now. Specifically, this great tradition of something from nothing that all artists are devotees of, to study and participate in the this miracle of how anything comes into being, the fascinating way that doing that can transform us and even those around us. That is seen as a luxury, as an indulgence, but in fact, it's the underpinning of everything that exists in human culture that we find valuable. Artists are often regarded as indulgent navel gazers. The implications being that really we should be entertaining people. And when we get into these deep internal mysteries of human existence, that is seen as something that has no quantifiable benefit. Right. In this digitized binary reality that you were describing, the question I have for you is given that those are the conditions, how optimistic are you that this is merely a phase? Give me your assessment of the next century. 
I tend towards optimism generally. And at the same time as, as what we've just been saying is true, I do think that there is a kind of resurgence of interest in this sort of thing. And I think that people are, in my own personal experience, one of the most encouraging signs I've seen recently is the resurgence of tabletop role-playing games, which you probably know I'm a kind of devotee of those, of those games, Dungeons and & Dragons and Call of Cthulhu in those games. These games have surged back into the mainstream in a weird way. And these are games that require you to get together with your friends around a table and have a conversation for about three or four hours a conversation about stuff happening in a fictional world, um, basically just telling stories with your friends. And I, to me, that's like how in this age of hyper awesome graphics and video games and that sort, what were the odds that that would come back? I think the humans are humans and we have certain needs that the current social, the, the current system, the current ethos isn't answering to. And so the needs aren't going to go away. So I believe that as trapped as we may all may feel right now in this kind of increasingly calculated, preconceived, pre, prefab reality, as trapped as we may all feel by that, I think that there is a need in the human heart that will not be stifled completely. And that at some point in various ways, people find their way back to the analog reality that we like to pretend, or at least people in Silicon Valley like to pretend doesn't actually exist. And so I'm optimistic. I think that it'll you will get more and more of these movements, trends, or whatever you want to call them, that encourage people to break out of the, uh, you know, but I say this at the same time as the system itself isn't going anywhere either. So are we going to be increasingly polarized, increasingly kind of schizophrenic in our lives where we have these, and you can see this already with the avatar phenomenon, right? We all have our online persona and then we have our real, our bodies and our identities and those things are increasingly separate. Is it going to go in that way? Is it going to, is there a, a breakdown of the, the unity of the human? I don't know. Maybe. Is that for better or for worse? I don't know. Again, I don't know. But I, I just have a feeling that there's a reason why your show exists and, and our show exists and the people are writing books like uh, what Eric Davis has been working on recently and, and, you know, whatever success reclaiming art has had. I think there's a reason why these things are being sought out. It's because the need is there. And I think that the need will be answered at some point, somehow for everybody. Yeah. Well, schizophrenia. Perfect segue to my next question, which is this riddle of pathology and non-ordinary experience. On one hand, there's not a great deal of sophistication in psychiatry and psychotherapy in how those practices interact with liminal experiences. They haven't quite caught up, so to speak. Right. John Mack, for instance, head of psychiatry at Harvard, paid dearly for being a pioneer in this regard. Researchers following in his footsteps have often fared no better. And in general, it's still not a great time to be a mental health clinician if you're saying that these experiences have some legitimacy mm -hmm. and that these realms are real, but perhaps unmapped or not well understood. But on the other hand, 
people do go crazy. We can't argue that there's no pathology or mental health issues within the weird and high strangeness. So I have two questions here. How do we distinguish between what might be a pathological break versus a groundbreaking, non-ordinary experience that is simply shattering a worldview? Right. Those two things can look really similar. The second question is, what does it even mean to be a healthy experiencer of non-ordinary events in a sick society? Yeah. I hope those two questions make sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I think it was Krishnamurti who said that it is, there's nothing good, or I'm paraphrasing badly, there's nothing good about being a sane person in a sick society or something like that, right? So now we're wading into very strange places because we're going to be talking about what pathology means and how one person's pathology. I'll start with a scenario that I was thinking about before we started talking. I was thinking about, imagine a person is awoken in the middle of the night by an intruder in their homes. And so they see a silhouette of a person rifling through their things. And the person, the intruder takes a piece of jewelry and runs off with it. The next day, the, the, or that night, the, the resident, the person who lives in the home, calls the police and the police comes and takes down the report. And then the person says, there was an intruder in my home. I had this pearl necklace and the pearl necklace is gone. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the policeman will, or the police officer will write this down. And of course, since burglars exist, uh, there's no reason to doubt that that's probably what happened. But of course, if the, if the resident had reported that the figure rifling through the jewelry had a, I don't know, had horns on its head and a tail, then of course the police officer would go, well, maybe did you just perhaps just lose the jewelry? Does this pearl necklace even exist? All these questions would suddenly rear their heads because it becomes incumbent upon the officer at that point to determine whether there actually was a burglary or not because the story, the report includes things that we've decided don't exist, or at least things that face a burden of proof that's so great that it trumps the credibility or it annihilates the credibility of the person reporting it. So if you're the police officer in this case, do you decide, was this person, did this person experience a kind of intrusion, a home invasion of some sort, or did this person is this person pathological? Well, the, the only way to answer that question is to know whether there are creatures with horns and tails robbing people in the middle of the night. It's a separate question. So the, the psychological question comes after the scientific question or the, the historical question or whatever you want to call it of whether such things exist. And that's the real question. There might have been a time where a UFO report would have been enough to put someone in an institution. But of course, now no psychologist would put someone away for having seen a UFO because tens of thousands of people see UFOs all the time. Nevertheless, no credibility can be lent to any particular report of a UFO because we have decided that spacecraft from other planets don't come to Earth. But of course, that decision is an arbitrary and silly decision given the amount of evidence we have that such things do in fact happen. So you have to ask yourself who's pathological? Was I pathological because I was looking at the UFO outside or was my teacher pathological because he refused to look? 
So like, I, I think that question answers itself, even though I'm not saying I'm not pathological, it's possible as well. It's possible that, that the word, it becomes, it, it's just a word. I mean, you can't make a decision as to what constitutes a hallucination, what constitutes a veridical kind of encounter until you know what's possible, right? And the only, I mean, just me from my own perspective, just looking at the sheer amount of testimony we have of just to take as example, the UFO phenomenon, that suggests to me that it's the skeptics that make the pathology word kind of start to like blink in my mind. Because on what basis can you decide what this universe is capable of, right? So, but that doesn't mean that some people don't hallucinate UFOs, right? Of course, and that's, that's your whole question. It's like, well, that doesn't mean, yeah, it's true. Um, and I think that you can only say that you have to approach things on a case-by-case basis. Mm. Also, you have to open the door to the possibility that perhaps certain realities manifest through pathology, that schizophrenia or whatever it's called now, um, dissociative disorders of various sorts, can perhaps, in addition to make someone make someone unable to function properly in our society, which is a real problem, I agree, may also open up vistas of reality that you want, we can acknowledge are real without thereby turning the person into a guru or into a, you know what I'm saying? Like there's ways of navigating this place. Like I have uh, a close friend who's bipolar and he's had really intense episodes of uh, schizoaffective mentation of various kinds. And at the time he would write me long letters and we've had long discussions about it. We had some during that time and also afterwards. And it's an interesting activity for me and him together to parse out the reality that was being expressed to this person then mm-hmm. from and the pathological part that made it negative for him, that made it so hard for him to function with this and that made it a problem that needed to be fixed. I just don't see them as, as opposed as, as they commonly are, right? right? Great, great point. You're actually taking this question to a level deeper. The truth is that some facets and forms of mental health issues can accord with genuine experiences in the mix of hallucinations, delusions, etc. There's not actually an A, B binary notion of this is sick, this is healthy, this is real, that's delusional. It doesn't always unpack like that for some people. Right. In ways we are unable to make sense of at this point, these phenomena seem to have some attraction to both of those. In many instances, it seems purposefully self-undermining. There are these things about high strangeness that seem to undermine itself just enough like a homeopathic dose of fraud comes with the phenomenon yeah (laughs) one of the imperatives in the scientific method is that you need to have a community of qualified peers to assess the data yeah there are not many communities of qualified peers in the weird that mutuality that you and your friend have developed for instance sounds wonderful and constructive but we don't find instances of that often. Yeah. Where do you find qualified peers for these kinds of questions? Well, I think you'd probably be more likely to find it in places that have an active 
spiritual, a tradition of spiritual practice. For instance, if you're uh, a First Nation person here in Canada or like a Native American, you might have access to technologies within that culture that can help you deal with these things without reducing them to that either it's real or uh, real or unreal binary double bind it's like or you might be able to if you're in a, a buddhist practice those practices can act as therapies for putting sense in all these but of course the, the thing is that we're we all kind of inherited certain metaphysical assumptions about the world which force us to turn every instance of the supernatural or of the weird or of the of high strangeness into it always we always have to affirm these things against some kind of baseline inherited set of assumptions that somehow imposes itself on us as though it were a, some kind of default mode i mean you can read the read anthropology you read like the history of of ideas it's implicit throughout modern scholarship that default is what human modern humans are and then religion and belief in the supernatural is added on top of that that we all start as materialists and then we contract almost like memes that have to do with ghosts and spirits and all that whereas in fact you can go back 10,000 years ago it'd be really hard to find a modern human <laughs> what you find instead are people who are always already immersed in a universe filled with non-human intelligences. This is something shared by all human cultures from the beginning. We're the exception. And then, of course, we try to define mental health in terms of our exceptional and our exceptionally poor set of assumptions about what's possible. And then, of course, we have all the problems you'd, if you'd figure would ensue from that. Like if we decided that anyone who saw fucking, I don't know, a mockingbird or a, uh, a hummingbird was in, if we decided hummingbirds didn't exist and we institutionalized people who claim to see them, well, those people would be institutions. But the fact is that these hummingbirds exist. And uh, the fact that we have made ourselves the exception by denying the reality of things that every other human culture universally believes exists, I don't know. Again, it turns the pathology question on its head as far as I'm concerned. What you're describing calls to mind what I feel is one of the funniest punchlines in our modern experience, which is SETI's search for radio signals to confirm that we're not alone in the universe. In, right. In my mind, I see a time lapse where SETI spends decades searching for radio signals as there is a simultaneous unfolding of Every instance of contact with a non-human intelligence played out over the planet. Yeah. I think that dichotomy speaks hilariously to the condition that you were just relating. Yeah, that's a beautiful way of putting an image to it. That's absolutely true. I've always wanted a poster of a UFO hovering over the SETI dish. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm sure has happened. Yeah. It's within our power to make that poster a reality. Yeah, for sure. That brings <laughs> me to a quintessential artist question. Okay. Given the multidimensional, truly transrational nature of some high strangeness that attends contact experiences, I've sometimes conceived of it as a game of kaleidoscopic chess. There is a game quality to it. Right. There's a way in which we are played with. 
It's not necessarily negative, but it is confounding. It can induce existential vertigo for those who play this game with the paranormal. So in this game of kaleidoscopic chess with non-human intelligence, what piece in that game of chess is the artist? Mm -hmm. When you reflect on your life as an artist, JF, how would you see yourself as a piece in this multidimensional game of chess? Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I don't know how much I want to talk about myself because I've come to doubt that I'm much of an artist in time. Just because, yeah, well, I mean, that's a separate conversation. But just assuming that I, I'm an artful person, I've practiced the arts. There's something about the artist that makes them, I think, I want to start big. I want to start with humans, okay? Because I think that it's easy when we think about this sort of phenomenon, there is a, a particular take on them that I think could become a problem if you go too far with it. And that is the take that the reality of these things shows us how peripheral humans are, right? How, shows us that humans are actually uh, the Lovecraftian take on it, let's call it. The, the idea, like in Lovecraft's fiction, these entities exist that are so beyond our understanding that, that they're completely indifferent to us. They see us as we see like maggots and uh, they're dealing with realities that we can't even grok we can't even perceive what they perceive we can't even perceive them they appear to us as these weird well kaleidoscopic just chaotic messes or tentacles and whatnot right so there, there is a very i would say that that's probably the dominant take on this stuff these days in the weirdo sphere i tend to think increasingly as i get older more in an, for lack of a better term a, a anthropocentric way about it in the sense that I think that humans have a, an actual role to play in this. And I think that you can only make the claim that humans are peripheral. This is a logical argument against the Lovecraftian take. You can only make the argument that humans are peripheral if you are working from data that you as a human were able to perceive and that you're able to argue is the case whether you're there or not. So you can only say humans are peripheral because X, Y, Z, if X, Y, Z are actually the case. But then the question is, how do you as a human perceive X, Y, Z as it is? You have a capacity to see reality as it is in order for you to claim then that we are peripheral. But the fact that you can perceive reality as it is doesn't make you peripheral to reality. It might you make you geographically peripheral in the sense that you are on an insignificant planet in an insignificant galaxy in an insignificant corner of the universe. It might mean you're peripheral because you're just a being of flesh and blood that could like a piano could fall on you and crush you at any minute for no reason. That's yes, we are peripheral in those in that sense. But the fact that we humans have the tools to perceive reality as it is and I don't mean that we perceive all of it. We only ever perceive little aspects of it. But nonetheless, the aspects are aspects of real things. And we can know the world to a certain extent to be the way it is. And that's the only, in fact, that is the underlying argument, whether you argue that humans are central or peripheral, you're still making that argument because you're, <laughs> you're saying something about the world that is the case. So I think that the centrality of the human in all this is an important piece to keep at least to hold heuristically in our hand as we continue to investigate this stuff. 
And then, of course, you can look at the artists, who are those humans who make it their, their life's work to play with what George P. Hansen, fantastic parapsychologist, who wrote a book called The Trickster and the Paranormal, which I recommend if you haven't read it already, uh, Stuart. It's like, it's a really good book. Artists play with anti-structure and liminality and that sort of thing. So artists, as McLuhan said, are kind of like probes. They'll go out of the well-trodden path of the, the kind of ruts that we're operating in. They'll go out of them and they'll encounter something outside of that, outside of the usual of the kind of govern, governing ethos or the epistem of the time. And then they see in, by nature, that thing is the weird because it's something that we don't know about yet. It's something we don't quite understand. And then they bring it back or they'll take something familiar and they'll weird it like Van Gogh did with his paintings. Take something familiar that you've seen a million times before in real life and a million times before in paintings and show it to me again so that I see it for the first time. Artists are weirders of reality. In that sense, they are connecting us to the real in the, the capital R sense of the term, the real being synonymous in my mind with the weird. So it's not surprising that artists would have, would be disproportionately represented in the worldwide community of people who've encountered non-human entities. And I think they probably are. It's not surprising because it's their job to engage in anti-structural thinking, anti-structural behaviors to place themselves in liminal situations, whether just it's just mentally or spiritually or physically, in order to experience the outside. And so what role do these artists play? Well, if humans are not just peripheral maggots in Cthulhu's bathtub, if humans have an actual part to play, then you can see from there how artists, as part of the human community, have this this role, this task to probe the real and increase our field of awareness and th shed light in corners that have gotten dark and darken corners that have become too luminous in order to bring us back to not just our sense, the centrality of our role as knowers of reality, but also of the fragility of our position and also the presence of all these other entities that are as, if not more intelligent than humans and that are constantly interacting with us. So I guess artists would be the kind of psychopomps or the tricksters or the guides who leave the, the fields we know, as um, Lord Dunsany called them, I love that, that expression, and go into Elfland and come back with weird shit. <laughs> For more on J.F. Martel, visit reclaimingart.com and also weirdstudies.com. JF's book, Reclaiming Art in the Age of Artifice, is available on Amazon and many other online portals. Ace Frehley's first encounter with unexplained aerial phenomena occurred while he was on tour with KISS. In flight between shows, Frehley observed a cigar-shaped craft from his seat on the plane. He would later report seeing other such craft often from his home in Westchester. As Freely told journalist Aaron Sagers, quote, I see something going across the sky, like super fast, and I'm watching, and it's going just like this really fast, and it stops dead and goes straight up. 
Now, if you know a plane that can maneuver at that speed and do a tactical maneuver like that, you let me know because I don't think there's one on Earth that can do that. Freely states that people who don't believe in extraterrestrials are idiots and that there's a 50-50 chance he's been abducted. Freely woke up one morning laid flat on his back, half out of his house, with a circular burn mark in the ground nearby. Freely reports receiving downloads as part of his songwriting process, saying, quote, Sometimes I write songs and I don't know where they're coming from. It's almost like they're being beamed into my head. I've had nights where I can't write the lyrics down as fast as I get them. And it's like I'm not writing them and somebody else is giving them to me. You can find more on Ace Freely's paranormal creative life in Aaron Seeger's article at denofgeek.com. Hi friends, Stuart Davis here. Not the dead painter, the, the other living Stuart Davis. The dead Stuart Davis was great, but he no longer needs your support because he's moved on to other forms of currency. He's working in the discarnate economy now. I, however, for now, would love your support. If you like the podcast, please consider becoming my patron. Just go to stuartdavis.com, click on the Patreon link, and transfer the sum total of your net worth or another amount. And I will use that money to buy food and heat my house, put gas in my car, and take my dog to the vet, and of course, make more art. Thank you so much for your support. Big 
It's in my lap, it's in my lap Wherever I'm from, this place is bubblegum Bubblegum, bubblegum Thank <laughs> you.